Please remain standing for the reading of the sermon text for today. Our sermon text com comes from Daniel 8. Hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from, across, came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the, great, then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? the transgression, transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold faced one who understands riddles shall arise, 
his power shall be great, but not by his own power, he, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men, and the people who are, with, who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach your holy word, we ask that you would speak to us. We ask that your spirit would empower the preaching of your word, that your spirit would open our hearts to receive it, um, incline our hearts to your word, help us to understand. And where we can't understand, empower us to trust. Father, we pray that your spirit would convict us of sin, that you would speak. We want to hear from you. We ask that you would do this for Jesus' sake, and in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, Daniel 8, if you're, if you're just now uh, joining us in this, in this series through Daniel, it may be helpful for you to know why we would tackle such a passage, okay? Uh, we, we have a conviction about preaching the word. We believe that the word of God is a grace to the people of God. But not just any grace, we believe that it is a necessary grace for God's people to grow and become what God has for us to become in Christ. And, and so our practice in giving you the word is to give you all of the word. We, we want to walk through Bible books. We want to walk through Bible books verse by verse. And uh, just honestly, we talked about this at the very beginning of the series. One of the reasons we're in Daniel is because we haven't considered Daniel at Trace yet. And, and Daniel was next. And, and sometimes it's just that simple. Um, we're not, we're not on, our, on our prayer mats just praying for the Lord to tell us, you know, in a vision what book we need to preach through next. We, we trust that all of God's word is God-breathed, and we trust that all of God's word is profitable for teaching. So we, we come to Daniel 8 because it, it comes after Daniel 7, and we were in Daniel 7 last week. And I have to be honest with you, that's probably the only way I would ever preach Daniel 8, okay, is if, it, if we were preaching through a book, the book of Daniel and it came after Daniel 7. Um, we introduced Daniel 7 last week by talking through what apocalyptic literature is. We introduced uh, the concept of apocalyptic literature because Daniel 7 through 12 is a shift from Daniel 1 through 6. Daniel 1 through 6 was narrative. Daniel 7 through 12 is apocalyptic, and, and that's why we see all of these uh, visions, and that's why we see all of these images that represent things in our world. Um, and, and Daniel 8 covers a lot of world history. And, and so before we get into the world history of Daniel 8, I, I kind of wanted to open and give you a little history of, of my life. Um, I grew up in, in a Christian home. My, my parents were, were believers. My parents brought me to church. It was the the same church that, that my mom's parents had been members at for, for years and years. And so I was, I was in the nursery uh, and, and, you know, grew up in that church. And I, I was taught the Bible and uh, turned from my sin and trusted Christ when I was uh, nine years old. Um, 
had an amazing Sunday school teacher when I was in fifth grade, taught me how to study the Bible, changed my life when she taught me how to study the Bible. And uh, from that point, I continued to grow as a believer and then uh, entered into high school and high school was, uh, I'd love to forget high school. It was, <laughs> it was not, not my better moments. I'm sure all of you have had those. But after high school, I go to college and, you know, I know a lot of you probably hear about, you know, uh, when students go to college, that's when their faith is really tested, You know, that's when you see a crisis of faith, and especially if they're going to a state school, you know, they're they're not at a at a Christian school, they're not at they're not at Blue Mountain, you know, they go to Mississippi State, or especially if they go to Ole Miss, right? Like there's just just danger of apostasy, you know, if you go to Ole Miss. Um, But I went to a a Christian liberal arts university in, in southern Kentucky, one of the safest places for a young Christian to be. And while I was at uh, the University of the Cumberlands, I had a crisis of faith. Um, a lot of people think it's because you're hearing a lot of science from the science teachers and it's causing you to doubt that the earth is, is not really young, it's really old, and now you have this major crisis. Actually, college students just have more free time to think, okay? We, we, our, our, our schedules aren't as structured as they were for us when we were in high school. Our, our schedules aren't determined by our parents. We're on our own. We're on our own for the first time, and so I had a lot of time to think, and, and there was something that happened in my life. Uh, my, my parents divorced. And uh, I, I started to think about not only that situation, but other situations where things were happening to me that I could not control. And, and it was a problem. So one issue that I really struggled with um, my first two years in college was what, what I call unjust opposition, unjust opposition where you have not done anything to cause a conflict but you are in a conflict because someone is bringing it to you you know i've been plenty of conflicts where it's 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 my fault i'm the one that's that's agging on i'm the one that's bringing the conflict on but but sometimes people oppose you just because you're you um and so i just started asking questions why are some people just against me and not for me um, why, why do those who want to do me harm prosper against me? I, I deeply wrestled with it. There, there were some, some, some deep wounds that, that happened throughout that entire process. And I remember going to, to my uh, uh, senior pastor at the time and I was asking him to do something. I was asking him to do something he couldn't do, but I was really just crying out for someone to make the situation right. This is wrong. Make it right. And no one would make it right. And the people who were opposing me, they got away with it. And I don't know if you, you've ever experienced anything like that, but it caused me to, to wrestle with God. And then I looked out at the world. And I saw the world's much bigger than me, and my problems are really minor compared to the suffering of so many people in the world. And then I started considering, look how much suffering is in the world. Look at all of the evil in the world. Um, these conflicts, these attacks, they're not right. I, I started thinking especially for God's people, right? Like you look out at the world and there's evil and there's suffering in the world. Nobody's immune to that. But then I think about Christians who are adopted by God, who are the children of God. And we talk about how much God loves us. Why do we experience so much pain? Why do we experience so much suffering? So I I question two things. 
I question God's goodness because so much suffering happened in the world in general. Then I question God's sovereignty because I know God loves me. I'm his child. I know God is good to me. So maybe he just isn't in control of the world in the way that I thought. Maybe he would love to be good to me and love to do good to me, but he just can't. When we see anyone suffer unjustly, we're tempted to question God's goodness. And then when we see dear and beloved saints of God suffer, we're tempted to question God's sovereignty. Sometimes, I experienced this in college, it it comes back, it creeps in from time to time, but sometimes the world and our lives just feel like they're spiraling out of control. And maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you feel like that your world, your life is spiraling out of control. And sometimes, maybe if you were honest with me for just a minute, sometimes, don't you wonder if God cares or if he's even there or if he is there, if he can even do anything about it? Daniel surely wrestled with this issue. He surely wrestled with this issue. He lived under the rule of God's enemies for the majority of his life. He came to Babylon essentially as a slave when he was a teenager. And now in Daniel 8, he's in his 70s. And he's still, he's still under the rule of evil Babylonian kings. How often did he doubt whether God would deal justly with his enemies? What we, what we see later, in, or what we saw in Daniel 6, what we saw in Daniel 6 is that Daniel prays toward Jerusalem. And, and that taught us that Daniel had this deep hope in the return from exile, that God's people would return to the promised land. He was hoping for that with everything that was in him. And he knew that the exile would not last forever. But do you ever think that Daniel maybe, maybe desired to know exactly when that day of reckoning and return would come? And do you think he ever questioned and doubted? you think he ever asked, is the end ever going to come? Is God going to deal justly with his enemies? Um, in Daniel 8, Daniel receives a vision that reminds him that God is up to something bigger than what's happening in his own lifetime. Because that's what happens. When I was having those doubts and those questions, I was completely focused on my, myself, my life, my world, my situation. Uh, a crisis of faith is always deeply personal. Deeply personal. It's less about the philosophical issues. It's more about the personal pain, the personal suffering, the personal confusion that we experience. Returning to the promised land for Daniel will not mean that the kingdom of God in its fullness will immediately appear. That's what this vision tells us. More suffering, more pain, more persecution of God's people will come. The end of exile, the thing that Daniel's hoping for with everything that's in him, is not the end of the story. So, so Daniel, in, through this vision, continues to learn that God is more sovereign and more gracious than he even knows. So just as we start, a question, how can we make sense of our presence and our purpose in God's world when so much of our existence is covered with the dark clouds of sin, suffering, injustice, and uncertainty? 
Do you feel like at this point in your journey that you have the endurance that is necessary to persevere through a future that's paved with pain? What if you knew, what if you knew that moving forward from this point for the rest of your life, that things were going to get far worse before they ever get better? Do you feel like at this point in your journey that you have the endurance to persevere through that pain and through that suffering? Uh, Throughout Daniel 8, Daniel sees different images. He hears a conversation, and then we see Daniel act. And that's, that's how we're going to break down Daniel 8. We're going to consider the three things that Daniel does. He sees, he hears, and he acts. And, and hopefully, the, the point here is to see how we should respond when our enemies prosper against us and when we are overcome with worry about the future. Now, Daniel 8 is slightly different from Daniel 7. They're both apocalyptic. They, they both use animals to represent kingdoms. There are a lot of similarities. However, they are pretty different. So the, the interpretation of the vision given in Daniel 8 is far more specific than the interpretation of the vision that's given in Daniel 7. So we can be more specific in our conclusions about what the images represent. I told you in Daniel 7 that I didn't even want to speculate on the identities of the kingdoms because in Daniel 7, the one who gives the interpretation doesn't give us that. So obviously it's not important. In Daniel 8, I hope you noticed that we are given some specifics. We are given identities of of kingdoms in in Daniel 8. And, And although there is a reference in Daniel, I don't know if you caught it, there's a reference in Daniel 8 to the end. The context of Daniel 8 helps us see that the end is not referring to the end of time, but rather to the end of the terror of the little horn, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So Daniel 8 is very interesting, because unlike Daniel 7, which points forward to a glorious future which we have not realized yet, which we have not seen yet, Daniel 8 is confined to history. Daniel 8 is a prophecy that has already found fulfillment in history. It's already happened. Um, which, which makes it an interesting prophecy. Everything that's predicted in Daniel 8 has already happened. And so, <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I read this, my first thought was, man, that's really cool. That's really cool that that really happened. Now, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, so, oh, God, God he did it. He did it. He, he, he saw that something was going to happen. He told him, and then it happened that way. Really cool. I got to go to work this week, though. Like, I have, a, I have a difficult relationship that I'm trying to reconcile right now. How does, how does this help with that? So what I'm hoping is by looking at what Daniel saw, what Daniel heard, and what Daniel did, that we can see how we can respond when we face the opposition that Daniel foresees in Daniel 8. So let's do that, okay? Let's take it, let's take it bit by bit by breaking down the vision. First, let's consider what Daniel saw. In the vision in Daniel 8, Daniel saw three prominent figures. And then what we see is we have an angel. Who's, this is the first time an angel is given a name in Scripture, Gabriel. The angel Gabriel then offers an interpretation for each figure that Daniel saw. So what we're going to do is we're going to consider each figure and the interpretation that Gabriel gives, all right? The first figure that Daniel sees is a ram. Daniel sees a ram. This ram had two horns, and one horn was higher than the other horn. Uh, one, One horn came first, the other one came after. And this ram 
charges westward and northward and southward, conquering everything in its path. It's this powerful ram that's on the warpath. This ram was fierce. It was powerful. It was unstoppable. No one could be saved from the fury and the might of this ram. And this ram became very great. Later in Daniel 8, Gabriel gives an interpretation of the ram. And he tells us, The ram represents the kingdom of Media Persia. The Medo-Persians would invade and conquer Babylon about 10 years after Daniel had this vision. Okay, So if you notice in verse 1, we're given the context again. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So in Daniel 7... If you remember, actually just flip if you need to flip, but Daniel 7, the first verse there, what do we see? He received that vision in the first year of of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So this is two years later. Belshazzar is still the king of Babylon. He's come about 20-something years after King Nebuchadnezzar, and this is toward the end of the Babylonian empire. But the Babylonians are still in power, and Daniel is still in Babylon. He's serving under the rule of King Belshazzar. But 10 years after Daniel receives this vision, the Persians invade Babylon, and we saw that how it played out in Daniel chapter 5. But the Persians invade Babylon, they take over, and they have been a world power, but they're going to continue to be a world power for the next 200 years. The kingdom of Media Persia was one of the most ruthless and powerful empires in the world, and it remains so for the next 200 years after after Daniel has this vision. The ram is Media Persia. Then, as he's looking at the ram, Daniel sees something else. He sees a goat. He sees a goat. The goat came from the west. So if the ram is heading toward the west, the the, uh, uh, goat is coming from the west. There's a collision course that's about to happen. This goat had a big conspicuous or noticeable horn that's that's set right between his eyes this great horn on this ram and and the goat runs at the ram with fury and wrath striking the ram with his horn the goat then breaks the horns of the ram and casts the ram to the ground and then tramples on him and no one could save the ram from the goat's power this goat grew and became exceedingly great and then it tells us but When this goat was still strong, the great horn of the goat was broken. And then that horn was replaced by four other horns. I know you guys are just like, what is the deal with Daniel and the horns? Like so many different horns here. But if you just see it, this big, really big horn, it breaks and then four horns take its place. Okay, Um, we need interpretation, please. Someone help us. Um, Gabriel comes to the rescue. He interprets this as well. Gabriel tells us, Again, it's so specific. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. I, I, was, I was like, any, any book of the Bible, any chapter of the Bible, whenever you consider commentaries, there are always critical scholars that have a problem with everything that every other scholar believes. There is very little consensus on any passage. Daniel 8, even the most liberal critical scholars are like, yep, there's really only one way to see this. There's really only one way to see this. Okay, so... Gabriel tells us the goat represents the kingdom of Greece. But he tells us more. He says the great horn represents the first king of Greece. Now, not the first king of Greece ever within the context, the first king of Greece to conquer the Persians. Um, We're able to add some information here because we know who that was. Alexander the Great. The great horn represents Alexander the Great. Great. 
now, the Persians conquered Babylon in 539 BC. The Greeks defeated the Persians in 331 BC, so 208 years later. 208 years later, the Greeks, they come in under Alexander the Great and they conquer the Persians. Greece grew very quickly in power. It became one of the the powers in the ancient Near East. It conquered much of the ancient Near East under the reign of Alexander the Great. It was was almost like Hitler's Nazi Germany with the Blitzkrieg War. That's how it was with Alexander the Great. He was swift, he was ruthless, he was powerful. His reign though was very short so his reign only lasted for 13 years from 336 to 323 BC and he dies um, very young in 323 BC and so the breaking of the great horn represents Alexander the Great's death okay it it foresees the death of Alexander the Great in 323 okay the four horns the four horns. This is the coolest part to me, how specific this is and how it played out. Because we're not having to like make it fit, you know, like, well, it was kind of like this. So, you know, I think we can find four guys that were kind of rulers. No, this is what happened. When Alexander the Great died, there was fighting within the Greek empire for the next decade. And what ended up happening is the Greek empire split into four major regions, And four of Alexander the Great's top generals became the kings, the rulers of those regions. So the four horns that grew in place of that great horn represent those four regions, those four kingdoms of the Greek empire with those four generals ruling as as those leaders. So, okay, the goat. But the bulk of the vision... The bulk of the vision, if you notice in Gabriel's interpretation, it's so quick. It's so quick. It's verse 20. Look at verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Verse 21. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. And then, and then in verse 22, it talks about the, it being broken. It talks about the four kingdoms that are, that are going to arise from that. Three verses tell about, you know, 200 some years of history. 200 some years of history. The bulk of the vision and the bulk of Daniel 8 is about the little horn. So Daniel sees another little horn. And the reason I say another little horn is there are some who believe that the little horn of Daniel 7 is the same as the little horn of Daniel 8. But I I disagree with that. I think we're talking about two different um, uh, kings here, two different rulers here. So, so the little horn that Daniel sees in Daniel 8, here, here's the description. So just as a reminder, I know this is, this is just super interesting, but you have the great horn, the great horn breaks, then what do you have? Four horns that take its place, and then what does Daniel see? A little horn takes the place of the four horns. Okay, lots of horns, but the little horn now, all right, we're focusing on the little horn. So here's the description of the little horn. The little horn grew great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Do you know what the glorious land is for Daniel? Israel, okay, the promised land. So it grew toward the south, the east, and toward the glorious land. The little horn threw down and trampled the host and the stars of heaven. Now remember, 
If, if you forget, if you think you're in narrative and you forget that you're in apocalyptic, you're going to be like, wait a second, hang on now. So we got a goat that's got a little horn and the little horn rises up and it starts throwing stars out of the sky, you know, and it, it can get really confusing. Um, but again, apocalyptic literature, images, symbolism, we're representing something else here. So the host or the stars of heaven, obviously throughout scripture, can represent a number of different things. It can represent angelic beings. It can represent the armies of the Lord. It, it can represent actual stars in heaven. But there are two places in scripture, Joshua 5, and then also the promise that's made to Abraham that gives us good reason to believe that the host or the stars of heaven represents the people of God. The people of God. So it says this little horn trampled and threw down the host, the stars of heaven, or the people of God. And then we read that the little horn became very great, even as great as the prince of the host, God himself. So this little horn is growing in his power and he sees himself on par with God himself. The little horn then, we see something further, interrupts the worship of God's people. He takes away the burnt offering. He overthrows the sanctuary. And then it says that a host, or God's people, was given over to the little horn. And then it says that the little horn threw truth to the ground and trampled over it. And then it says that this little horn, who's so evil, attacking God's people, prospered. Prospered. Succeeded in all that it did. Daniel's really confused, and, and so are we. Um, Gabriel gives an interpretation. Here's what Gabriel says. The little horn is a king of bold face who will arise at the latter end of the kingdoms of the four kings who replaced the first king of Greece. So back up, back up. You have Greece is the goat. You have the horn, which is Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is replaced by his four generals, the four horns. And then the little horn replaces the four kings. And so it says that there will be a king who arises at the end of the reign of those four generals, those four horns, those four kings who themselves replaced Alexander the Great. Now, what are the actions of this king? The interpretation gives us more information about what this king does. This king will become great. This king will cause fearful destruction. This king will succeed in all that he does. This king will destroy the people of God. This king will, without warning, destroy many Gabriel says, this king will rise up not only against God's people, but he will rise up against the prince of princes, which we can look back and say is God the son, Jesus himself. This king is attacking not only God's people, but he is attacking God himself. And then at the end it says, but this king will be broken, but by no human hand. Okay, like I said, this all of this prophecy is fulfilled in history, so we can look back, we can say a little bit more than what we even find in Daniel 8. We can give a little further uh, interpretation. We can flesh this out. Who was this king? There is consensus once again, consensus once again, that it is very likely that the king described in the vision Daniel had in 547 BC is Antiochus IV Epiphanes who ruled one of the regions of the Greek Empire from 175 to 164 B.C. 
Um, you need that name again? <laughs> Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Uh, the actions described in the vision match, match almost perfectly the actions Antiochus took against Israel in 168 BC. It's almost perfect. Um, Antiochus comes to power in a really shrewd way, but when he's in power, he wants more than anything else for the entire world to be Greek. Okay, he can't stand any other cultures. He wants everyone to be Greek. And so in Jerusalem, where he had power, he wanted to rid the Jews of their culture and force them to conform to Greek culture. All of this information is actually found in the books of First and Second Maccabees, which if, you, if you've ever been in a Catholic church, it's in part of the Apocrypha. Okay, so you can find all of this that's played out in First and Second Maccabees. Antiochus had just been defeated in Egypt in 168. Okay. So he was in Egypt, he was trying to gain power over the world, but Antiochus, as powerful as he was, Rome was more powerful. And so he loses Egypt, and he is furious. Antiochus is furious in 168. And so he takes out all of his anger on Jerusalem. He takes out all of his anger on Jerusalem. He returns to Jerusalem, and he pillages the city. He set it on fire, he destroyed homes, he captured women and children, and he killed thousands of Jews. Here's a quote from 2 Maccabees 5.14. Raging like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery." Antiochus removed the high priest from his position in Jerusalem. He desecrated the temple by setting up a shrine to Zeus. He even held a ceremony in which he sacrificed a pig to Zeus in the temple. He stopped the Jewish sacrificial system, and he killed anyone who tried to read or obey the Torah. Any scriptures that were found were burned. Um... This assault against God's people and their worship of him was a direct assault against the prince of princes. His attack against the sacrificial system, which pointed forward to Christ himself, was a direct assault against God. And his people suffered greatly under the terror of Antiochus IV, which we believe is the fulfillment of the little horn. But although Antiochus appeared to prosper without repercussion or rival, the prince of princes would be both superior and triumphant. So here's what we see from history. The little horn, what we see in Daniel 8, the little horn, what's it say? It shall be broken, but by no human hand. This is confirmed in the way that God judged Antiochus. So accounts of Antiochus's death differ. There's some mystery. Nobody's really sure exactly how he died. But what we do know is that Antiochus was not killed in battle and Antiochus was not assassinated. And the only thing that we read is that Antiochus died of a disease. So Antiochus died suddenly and mysteriously of natural causes. Okay. At the end of this vision, Daniel has witnessed 400 years of history. 400 years of history, including the humiliation and persecution of his people. But 
The vision doesn't end uh, with Daniel seeing something. The vision ends with Daniel hearing something. So look at verses 13 and 14. So Daniel saw a ram, he saw a goat, he saw a little horn, but then Daniel hears a heavenly conversation. Okay, so verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Okay, so he hears this conversation. You have one angel who asks another angel, how long will God's people suffer and how long will the worship of God remain desolate? And then another angel responds and says, here's how long, 2,300 evenings and mornings. And after that point, the sanctuary will be restored. All right, don't want to get weird with Bible numbers, okay? Enough, enough pastors get weird with Bible numbers, so I'm going to be as straight up as I possibly can. Um, there are two different ways that you can look at the 2,300 number, all right? Obviously, the evenings and mornings, it may make you think of what? 2,300 days, okay? So it makes you think of that. But, however, the way that it's worded, it could also refer to 2,300 evening and morning sacrifices, which would amount to 1,150 days. People, you know, they're on both sides of that issue. I tend to land on the side of 2,300 evening and morning sacrifices, which would make it 1,150 days. It's not overly significant either way. However, the number 1,150 is historically significant during the terror inflicted by Antiochus, okay? So the period from the time the temple was first desecrated all right, when Antiochus went in and he desecrated the temple and all of this terror began was December 6, 167 B.C. Okay, December 6, 167 B.C. That's when the temple was first desecrated. And then the first sacrifice on the newly consecrated temple or altar was December 14, 164 B.C. The time between... The desecration of the temple and the rededication of the temple uh, was 1,106 days. That's not 1,150, though. So <laughs> you're probably like, oh, cool, that's close, but uh, no cigar. Um, uh, so so let, me, let me help you out here. The use of round or approximate numbers was an acceptable practice and was not considered failed prophecy. So, for instance... There are a lot of places in Scripture, for instance, where the slavery of God's people in Egypt was, was predicted to be 400 years. It was actually 430 years. Um, Jeremiah prophesied that the exile would last 70 years, but at the end of the 68th year, God's people return to their home, and the exile is ended. But in biblical prophecy, round numbers are usually given, or approximate numbers are usually given. And so when we see that this terror that this desecration of the temple will last 1,150 days, that is actually fulfilled in what happened in history. Um, so how it unfolded, Judas Maccabeus, I don't know if you're familiar with that history, he recaptured Jerusalem and purified the temple that Antiochus had defiled, and he erected a new altar to reestablish the sacrificial activity for the Jewish people. And I don't know if you know this, but that's where Jews get the ceremony Hanukkah. So the, the, the festival of Hanukkah comes from, from this story. 
you're probably as overwhelmed as Daniel was whenever he saw this vision. Like, wow, that's a lot. So let's, let's take a snapshot then. Let's take a step back, get out of the weeds, see if we can, we can come back and see the big picture. Two things. Now, you're probably like, two things could have summarized this entire thing and you walk through all these details. But yeah, yeah, Daniel basically learns two things. First, Daniel learns about a future succession of kingdoms over a span of about 400 years. He learns that Persia will come and take power, but then they will be replaced by Greece under Alexander the Great, and then four regions of the Greek Empire will arise after Alexander the Great. Then Daniel learns about the future determined and limited suffering of God's people under Antiochus IV. Daniel is currently in exile, and he's hoping for the return. He's hoping for the return of God's people so that worship can continue in Jerusalem at the temple. His vision lets him know that that's going to happen. The temple is going to be restored. His people are going to return from exile. However, years later, his people are going to be persecuted in a brutal and ruthless way. More suffering will come after the return from exile. But, but, the little horn will be broken, and God will act as he always has, with sovereign grace and power on behalf of his people. That's the vision. That's the vision. It's a little depressing, especially for Daniel. It's interesting for us as we look back and say, oh, cool, all of that played out in history. But it's really, it's really depressing for Daniel, because what he sees is, my people are currently suffering. I'm hoping for the end of that. And he says, okay, but let me tell you something, boy. That's going to end. More suffering's coming. More suffering's coming. More pain is coming. It's going to get harder. It's going to get worse before it gets better. The context of Daniel 8 is that Daniel 8 foresees the prosperity and success of evil opponents of God's people. They succeed. Do you notice that word throughout? They prosper. They succeed against God and against his people. Um, so a question that we need to ask as we, as we turn to some application here. How should we live when our enemies prosper and we suffer at their hands? If you knew today that the next 10 years would be harder for you than the past 10 years, how would you live your life? And do you have the endurance that it will take to persevere? We need to look at how Daniel responded for some cues. So at the end of Daniel 8, at the end of Daniel 8, after he sees all that he sees and he hears all that he hears, Daniel acts. He does something. Verse 27, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel does three things here, and I think we can take some cues. I think we can take some cues from the way that Daniel's responding to this news of future suffering for his people. We can take some cues that may help us if we have a future that is marked by more suffering than, than good. First, Daniel was overcome and appalled by the future suffering of his people. He's overcome. This is, this is the strong Daniel that we've seen throughout the book. And it says that he was overcome and he lay sick for some days. This vision made him physically ill. And then it says that he was appalled by the vision. He's appalled 
that his people are going to suffer such atrocities sometime in the future. So what do we do when we presently suffer? And what should we do if we face suffering down the road? The first thing we should do is lament. Lament. Lament your suffering. For us as Christians, we're beyond this point in history. But Christ has yet to return. And as long as we live in this age, we are going to be met with suffering. More suffering will come until Christ returns. As long as we live in this age, God's people will suffer and evil rulers will prosper. It's a pattern that continues even to today. Enmity will continue to exist between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman as promised in Genesis 3. Conflict will continue. So one thing we should do is lament that ancient snake and the suffering that he brings. Lament it. Be like Jesus at the grave of his friend Lazarus and, and cry and, and, and be angry at death. Lament the pain that it brings. Cry out as the angel did in verse 13. How long? How long will the suffering last? How long, O oh Lord? Learn, learn to pray Psalm 6. Learn to pray Psalm 6. Let's, let's turn there together. Psalm 6 is a beautiful, beautiful lament. We can be sure as God's people that we will face suffering and pain in this world and and that God may not always protect us from the prosperity of evil. And when that happens, let's learn to pray Psalm 6. The psalmist writes, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Let's learn to pray prayers like this and not hide from our pain and not ignore our pain but instead cry out to God in our pain. Why, God? Why would you allow this to happen to your child? Do you hate me? Are you not for me? Why would you allow this to happen? Have you ever just cried out, I don't understand what you're doing. Lord, have mercy on me, your servant. Part of building a culture of grace in our church involves helping one another lament our pain. That's one thing that life group is for. That in life group, you're not just sharing things so that we can know information about your life. Hey guys, like I'm really struggling right now. Oh man, that's really cool. And you write it down. Oh, he's really struggling about that. I'll go pray for him later. No. We hate each other's pain. We hate each other's sin and suffering. 
And we can do that together. We weep with those who weep. Part of discipleship is training one another through the practice of prayer on how to lament the world for, for the way it is. So like Daniel, let's be appalled and disturbed and distraught by the pain and suffering that this world often brings lament. Okay, the second thing that Daniel does is he doesn't fully understand the vision. And I find this so interesting. It's so interesting because Daniel's the one guy in the Babylonian empire who understands visions, okay? He's the guy. He understands all of these visions. And his own vision, he says, I was appalled by the vision and did not understand. And obviously this doesn't mean that Daniel didn't understand anything of of the vision or any aspect of the vision. But Daniel didn't understand how this was going to play out. We can actually understand the vision way more than Daniel could because we can look back and see how this was fulfilled in history. But there's a word for us here. We don't have to know everything about the future or even everything about God's word in order to be faithful to God. Okay? When that uncertainty comes, whether you're uncertain about the future or you're uncertain about something in God's word, it can create fear and it can create worry, neither of which will produce endurance through suffering. Faithfulness to God through trials and tribulations requires trust in God. And God has provided everything we need for growth in godliness and for endurance through suffering. So even when our minds fail to understand, our hearts can still and always cling to God and find peace in the midst of conflict. So a word about discipleship here. As we seek to make disciples in this place amongst ourselves and in our city, discipleship is less about information and more about formation. Discipleship is the process of being formed into the image of Christ. And as we seek to disciple one another and make disciples in the city and among the nations, we can't ever come from a place of certainty about what the future holds or certainty about God's word in so many different places. That's not what discipleship is about. We can come from a place of humility and submission to God's word and to God himself when we don't understand what he's doing and when we sometimes don't understand what God's word is teaching us. Discipleship is a process of training one another, not just to know stuff about God, but to actually love and trust God. And it's our love and trust in God that will help us to persevere when suffering like this comes. How does Daniel 8 encourage us to trust God? Daniel's vision paints a picture of a sovereign God. God is in control when life feels chaotic. When your entire life feels like it's falling apart and that nothing is in order, God is in control. He knows the future. He controls the future. And nothing takes him by surprise. Kings rise and kings fall by the hand of God. And evil rulers prosper against God's people, but that that victory is only temporary, and it's always, always met with God's justice. So, even though we often don't know what the future holds, even though we often don't know what the future holds, and even though sometimes we don't understand what God's doing, Remember that he is worthy of your trust because he is sovereign and he is gracious. The last thing we see Daniel do is he goes back to work. He goes back to work. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. 
there's something here. Maybe, maybe not much, but there is something. We can remain faithful to God wherever we are and no matter what comes. Your circumstances, your life situations, they change all the time. Where you work, where you live, it changes all the time. We can't be certain of that. But no matter where we are, no matter where we work, and no matter what comes, we can remain faithful. Daniel was not defeated by this frightening vision of what will come for his people. He recovered from his grief, he dusted himself off, and he continued living as a faithful servant of God in exile. So the word here is that trusting God with the future means obeying God in the present. If you really trust God with the uncertain future, which may be more painful five years from now than it is today, you will be faithful to God today while you have today. King Belshazzar was a vain and vapid ruler. And it was under his leadership that Babylon is defeated. But Daniel was not driven towards cynicism or defeatism. Daniel remained a competent and loyal worker in a fleeting empire. So I want to encourage you, wherever you are, wherever you are and whatever you're experiencing, keep pursuing Christ-likeness in this age, no matter how painful life may become. Here's how you can do that. Although that little horn that Daniel sees made himself to be great, Antiochus IV gave himself the nickname Epiphanes, which means God made manifest. Even though he elevated himself in that way, the prince of princes broke this little horn. God put an end to his people's suffering in 164 BC by putting an end to Antiochus IV. But this Victory only points forward to a greater victory that happened about 200 years after Antiochus' death. About 200 years later, something happened. We have full confidence that this unjust opposition, this conflict with evil, this conflict with sin and with Satan and with our enemies is not an eternal conflict. Our enmity, our conflict with the seed of the serpent will come to an end. What we can declare with confidence today is that the snake crusher has come, he has conquered, and he is coming back to put an eternal end to this conflict between God's people and our enemies. Jesus defeated all of our enemies on the cross. He purchased peace with his blood. So when suffering comes, when the hard days come, and, and they will come, we can dust ourselves off and we can get back to work. We can go about the king's business. We can work hard in our jobs. We can pursue the good of our city and we can contend for the gospel. And because of who we are in Jesus, this great conqueror, nothing can stop us. Even though the near future for you may prove dark and bleak, your distant future in Christ is gloriously bright. Let me pray for us.